Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of The Occasionalist. It's Adam Chembalewski here with the one and only Matthew Pagel. How are we doing today, bro? Doing very well. Doing very well. Really excited to dig into this episode. Um, mostly because I have nothing else to do because I am encased in 30 feet of snow. <laughs> yes, you are. You are in the great blizzard of 2022 that is currently ravaging Northeast Ohio. And I am telling you, man, I just I hope that you're staying safe on the roads if you just if you're going out at all, if you have gone out and I uh, just hope that you get through it and get to, uh, you know, get through this fucking snowstorm, dude. I got to tell you, it's fine. It's fine. The thing is, like, people really freak out about it. Like, if you grew up here, you should know what to expect. Like, mm-hmm. just you don't, you know, for like the day, you don't go anyplace. You stay inside, you put on a sweatshirt, you only go outside if you absolutely have to. Go into, like, there's no reason for you to go to fucking McDonald's today. (laughs) Right. Just stay at home and cook yourself a fucking meal. It's fine. Yeah, dude, I got to tell you, there were some blizzard days um, that I had had in Cleveland throughout my life that were some blizzard Saturday nights, you know, Saturdays, Sundays where, you know, you could walk to the bar and stuff and it's literally you and maybe like 10 other people in the neighborhood, the bar's still rocking. And like, some, those are some of the best fucking nights because the blizzard keeps all the riffraff idiots out of like, you know, the neighborhoods in downtown mm-hmm. Cleveland and stuff. And I had some really great nights uh, at the hands of a blizzard. I'll tell you. Th- those were the, I mean, it only happened a couple times while I was at BG, but that's where those were like some of the busiest bar nights. Because as, as soon as kids knew that they had school canceled either the next day or, like, classes were canceled that night, everyone descended on the bars. So the bars right. were fucking packed. It was so right. – it was it was literally, the like, the complete opposite of what you'd expect. But also, like, don't don't underestimate how badly 21-year-olds want to go, to go drink at a bar. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, dude. And I'm telling you, I kind of miss some of miss those days where snow days actually affected me and everything, yeah. you know, and goddamn, it's just like to be young again and stuff. Because if I was in the same position, if I knew I didn't have school the next day, I'd be slamming the second I found out. Absolutely. That's what you do when you're 20, 21. Oh, God, to be young again, to be young again. Well, okay, everybody. So this episode is not going to be Pagel and I rehashing our younger days, even though, my God, I want to do that so badly. Um, Definitely feeling that. We are actually going to be doing the very, very first episode of the very, very first Factual February brought to you by The Occasionalist and our themed year, 2022. And this episode is called The Last Faction Heroes, which we are. And we are going to be talking about factual inaccuracies in action movies. So I'm very excited to get into it. Um, There was some house cleaning that I wanted to do. Uh, It's really quick. Um, My Michelin star experience that I was going to have. Okay. One of the most just... Okay, I got to explain this the best way. Part of it was really awesome. Part of it was just nothing to get excited about. And it equated itself out to a just okay experience. And um, we went to a Korean barbecue place that has a Michelin star. The meat is top notch. It was so fucking good. Mm. Like that was, that was the awesome part. Hands down some of the best cuts of meat I've ever had at a Korean barbecue place. Yep. And where it kind of goes south is some, like when you go to Korean barbecue, they give you these little side dishes called banchan that are like little type finger food things mm-hmm. that you're supposed to, mm-hmm. you could eat on your own or you could put it with the meat and kind of eat it with the meat. Mm-hmm. 
this banchan was just like it was bad dude like they gave us 10 things and there was like seaweed in it i mean there was all these things that like it was a tuna a tuna salad which was really unusual because usually you get potato salad with the korean barbecue places i've been to um it was really really weird and it kind of offset the experience is along with the soup that we ordered. And I got to tell you, man, like every Asian soup I've ever had has been a flavor explosion. Okay. Oh, they're so good. I mean, it, it's so goddamn good. This one looked absolutely amazing. It looked so fucking good. And it had this red broth. And I was like, man, this is going to be a, a flavor explosion. Literally like no flavor in it whatsoever. Like, that I don't even know. I don't even know how it translated like that. So like literally I'm looking at red broth and I'm like, this should taste like something. It did not taste like anything really. And I got to say that when I put the two together, they kind of cancel each other out into a just an okay experience. And because I had this okay experience that cost me all of about $200, I was still hungry afterwards. Cause usually the banchan Jess and I like had to get more of, cause it's all so good. This wasn't the case this time. And I went to KFC and I got the um, meatless chicken nuggets that they had. Mm-hmm. And I got to say, same thing as you, man. You could hardly taste that. You could hardly taste the difference. So there's some textural, textural like, difference, difference for sure. But like nothing in the, the flavor that I would be like, oh, my God, this is such a drastic thing. Don't go eat it. I personally I, I liked it. I thought this was a really great addition to the KFC menu, especially for people who want to go um, the meatless route. So I'm I'm all for it. And it, it took a uh, $200 just okay experience <laughs> to get me there. But but I got there and I, I liked it. Yeah, it's, that, that's definitely the disappointing part. Um, that's that's sort of that, isn't that true though with all Michelin star restaurants or just fancy restaurants in general? Um, yeah, there's always um, there's always something that's just like a it it sounds good and then you get it and you know it even looks good and you're just kind of like this is just not for me. Like yeah. I, I've had that experience at every single you know more you know fancy makes me sound like we're like fucking rednecks or something but (laughs) like you know like more higher priced restaurants that we just don't frequent that often um Mm -hmm. that most people don't frequent that often um there's always just like something that you can get a great steak and then maybe it's garnished with something you're just like oof nope (laughs) i don't know what this is but i don't like it (laughs) right that's exactly right dude and like i gotta tell you we were so excited for this and like i got my christmas bonus and every time i get a bonus jess and i usually go out to like a nicer restaurant and stuff i was so excited for it and like i remember we got into the car and like jess was like man like just no and i was like okay yeah i gotcha and and i said like well what about the soup and she's like i I didn't really like the soup and i was like okay so we were both just doing our whole like okay yeah this is isn't bad just trying to keep them it's just trying to keep some pot we're eating the mm-hmm. soup both telling each other that it's you know that it's good but it really wasn't and i was like well i appreciate you really working to keep the momentum up because i was doing the same thing <laughs> <laughs> and it's and you know what and it's one of those those are one of those situations too where like maybe you don't feel filled and you're kind of like should i get like a dessert or something because right. maybe that's really good, but what if it turns out like the soup? Oh, so that I'm glad you brought that up. So we were wanted to get dessert, okay? And uh, we were looking up donut places. And there's a bunch of them in Koreatown, right? Mm-hmm. And so, like, just like, oh, here's this really high-rated donut place. It's, like, right down the street. It's, like, 0.2 miles away. It's, like, oh, let's go to it, right? We get in there, and this was, like, one of the most basic donut 
places like i we got in there and it was like i just saw like all the i saw all the excitement just melt away from jess and it was like we ended up eating we got like two donuts just so because we set foot in the door you know Mm -hmm. but it was one of those things where like if the guy like wasn't this like sweet like little innocent looking old man and everything working his ass off on a sunday afternoon if it was like a kid back there i'd probably would have left but since it was this older guy it's like all right we got to buy something you know yeah it's it was just a bakery not like a not like a brew nuts or something that's that's what we thought we were going to be getting ourselves into you know and um i gotta say that uh, we had a little bit of a a little bit of a bad luck streak that i brought to a close at a kentucky fried chicken now how many (laughs) how many people could say that right seriously (laughs) seriously i'm glad you liked it though it's it's one of those things i'm gonna try probably this weekend i'm gonna try chipotle's um uh their plant-based chorizo to see how that tastes. I don't I don't think this is going to be some total transformation of me just like eating plant-based foods, but like right. it legitimately is good to know that the 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 lengths that these companies have come in making plant-based foods, it like it's light years where they were, you know, even several years ago and certainly when we were kids, like the vegetarian mm-hmm. kind of meat substitutes were fucking terrible. Oh, yes, they were. And I will say the Chipotle chorizo, it's got to be good. I have yet to see Chipotle do anything wrong. So mm-hmm. I will tell you that that's probably going to be some of the best uh, non-meat chorizo that you have without paying a shit ton of money for it. We'll find out. We'll find out. <laughs> All right. Well, let's get into it. The Occasionalists are the last faction heroes. We're going to start off with an opening discussion. Then we're going to do something that I'm really, really excited about called the Stuntman Spotlight. And then after that, I uh, assembled a bunch of clips and we're going to go over some factual inaccuracies from action movies throughout, you know, like the last like 20 years or so. I'm very All excited. Right. I'm so excited for that part, too. <laughs> oh, me too, dude. I was like, I put the I was going through when I did the outline, I went through the clips and then I put them all on there. And like, I, I didn't watch all of them. Like I kind of watched enough to be like, okay, this is what I want. You know, this is like kind of what I want to talk about. And now that I've gone through all of them, I'm like, oh man, this is just like so right for material. <laughs> it really, mm-hmm. really is. <laughs> so yeah, I can't wait to get to that, but let's start it off here with, um, all right, man. So are there genres of film that you hold in a higher standard than other genres genres with regard to being factual in the action plot or dialogue? I, number one, yes. And it, number one is any kind of period piece, um, mm-hmm. be it, you know, be it set in 18th century England or like 1970s New York. It, yeah. Whatever the period is, that's where I'm, I kind of hone in a little bit more on any inaccuracies or, uh, you know, inaccuracies or anything else that's going to sort of pull me out of like the immersion right mm-hmm. like if, if we're doing a, if we're doing some if we're doing like a pirate show you know that takes place in the 1700s i better feel like i am on that fucking boat with those pirates right like i have to feel fully immersed so i mean that means you know costuming props sets um the, even it, in some situations the dialogue even has to match up like right. you know like if we're if we're doing if we're doing like something from the 1970s or 80s I want to hear 1970s and 80s dialogue, be it mm-hmm. pop culture references or just turns of phrase that yeah. would have been more popular at the time. Like, I want to hear those because, like, if I hear, you know, if I'm watching some, like, 1970s movie or – let's go and go back a little farther. If I'm watching some, like, 1940s war movie and I hear, like, the the soldiers, like, calling each other, like, dumb motherfuckers and, like, watch your ass, mm-hmm. bitch. I'm like, yeah. people, didn't, people didn't talk like that back then. So right. that, that takes you out of it. 
So like those are like the those are for sure the ones that I hone in on. Um, and it, it, there are just very there are very particular things that can kind of pull me out of it or can I, I notice right away when it comes to period pieces. Oh, of course, dude. Period pieces it, for this discussion, I think, are like the creme de la creme of what you need to get right in terms of like factual stuff, you know, like you make a good point about the 1940s movie. Like it would really suck to see if two soldiers like just man killing those Nazis was really groovy, baby. You know, like that would mm-hmm. totally not work in that situation. And like, I, um, I'll say that one thing to take it even to a, an even bigger extreme would be like game of Thrones, for example, which is in a fantasy land. It's, I guess if you want to like throw it in a, it's a period piece of some kind, even though it yeah. is fantasy. It's the medieval period. You know, they may not be on the same street, but we're at least talking the same city. Yeah. And like when Game of Thrones later on started to use words like ginger and stuff, like it was like, okay, so you guys just working this in now? Like, did they yeah. run out of terms? Like, they were, they just need this torment giant Spain joke, and it does take you off from it because it's something that um, it just comes out of nowhere, and especially with Game of Thrones, which is this long running series you are kind of already used to and accustomed to certain vernaculars and the way they say phrases. So when you just hear ginger all of a sudden out of nowhere, it could be very, very off-putting. The same way that you had mentioned um, the World War II reference and everything, the 1940s movies reference. Mm -hmm. So, like, I think that um, the period pieces are by far and away, like, that's something that, like, you need to really, really get right. With other dramas, like, I do, like, I don't necessarily want all of the factual stuff because a lot of the factual stuff is kind of fucking boring, you know? And like, uh, movies like spotlight don't come along very, very often where they sort of make the investigative process very, very intriguing. And that they did a really good job putting that movie together, but that's a once in a, like a once in a generation type movie where the factual stuff, and believe me, I know that they had a little bit of, um, they took the, the writers had a little bit of liberty to do what they wanted with that script too, but at least like they made it seem realistic. So with dramas, like I at least want like some kind of evidence that somebody did some work here and it doesn't need to be, you know, you making the boring stuff all of a sudden really interesting, but like, I do want like I, I like what i want like you know lincoln has to like get shot in the end like he can't just like you know leave the theater and stuff you know and uh or even like, <laughs> that, that becomes a totally different type of movie then <laughs> right exactly so you know i guess um and number the, the other thing too is that like i just don't want it to be so like in my face that it's a factual like inaccuracy that it turns me off and stuff. And I got to say with other, with other genres and pretty much almost every other genre or type movie, like my suspending of disbelief is pretty much well in the air, dude. Like I came here to be entertained, you know, like I kind of want to put the world behind, but there are some like, you know, some, I guess like more serious movies that I think should give me evidence that you've done the work to make, sure that there's some that some things yeah. are factual yeah absolutely I, I'm, I'm glad you brought up something like spotlight because i was also thinking about i was also thinking about a drama like rudy that mm-hmm. most of <laughs> most of rudy and daniel rudiger's life at least it's portrayed in the in the movie is pretty factually incorrect um mm-hmm. uh down to like his you know the way his friend died in the factory or whatever um but also like a lot of the stuff that actually happened at notre dame was very different however 
you get a much better scene of all the players turning their jerseys into the coach than you know than how Rudy actually like was able to get on the field. You know, that's right. like I, I'm totally okay with you bending the truth if it leads because it's a movie, you're right, we're here to be entertained. Bend the truth if it makes for a better scene. And that Jersey scene in Rudy, if you don't, I, at some point in time, time, Jim, I want to do an episode on like the stuff that makes men cry in movies. If you don't get emotional as someone who played sports, watching your teammates say, we're not going to play if Rudy's not going to play, then you don't have a fucking heart. Oh, believe me, dude, that even thinking about it is, you know, putting my muscles in a constricting crying fashion and everything. And like, as somebody who was young and playing peewee football and someone who was also heavy all the time playing peewee football, I was subjected to that movie constantly. (laughs) Like Uh it was, it was such an inspiring story that I went like 15 years of hating it. And then I think (laughs) I caught it one day and cried like all the way through it. And now like. I will watch it. Like, believe me, if you ever want to do that, I will gladly watch it and I will record how many times I cry throughout that movie because it will be a, it will be a lot. There's, <laughs> sure. I, I, I realize like how many things that like now that like make me not that they never did before, but like really kind of taking stock of like things that make me emotional, like the ending, mm-hmm. like the very end of the Lord of the Rings trilogy when they all bow to the hobbits. And it's just yeah. like. I'm like, God damn it, I'm going to fucking cry over these stupid little midgets. Like, ugh. Yeah. yeah, I got to tell you, man, like, I, this whole crying in movies thing, like, it's been something that's been going on, like, my entire life, right? Like, even, but as a kid, like, you kind of cry and it's almost like anything will kind of get you as long as there's some emotional thing, right? Right. But as an, as an adult, like, I can almost pinpoint the moment that this whole thing started. And it started with the movie The Trojan War with Will Friedley. I was watching this movie one afternoon, dude, and I don't know, there was something about it that just like struck a nerve with me and I started crying during this movie and like it almost seems like I'd never look back in terms of crying during movies. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. Um, <laughs> I, now I'm going to have to fucking... I, oh, I, you know what? I, I, know, I know this movie actually, yes. Not yeah, like super a, well, but I'm familiar enough. It's a, it's a dumb comedy. It yeah. shouldn't have sparked an emotional reaction like that. Yep. Um, <laughs> and actually, and you brought up, and you did bring up action movies here, so like I, I'm glad you brought that up too, that like um, I, I am like... There are there are types of action movies that I am 100% okay with really suspending a lot of my disbelief. Like mm-hmm. science fiction and fantasy action movies, superhero-related stuff. Like, I am very willing to put aside a lot of things to yeah. let those, you know, to let whatever they're, you know. Especially in science fiction, you can kind of just right away, you know. Like, you can say, like, oh, it's, uh, they're able to travel, you know, that fast because of this invention. It's like, oh, okay. Like, it's... That's fine. Like you, at least That's you addressed it. Explanation for me, right? Exactly. exactly. So, but like when you, but there are like certain things that like, there are certain things, and we'll get into this further. Like there are certain types of action movies where like the the farther away you get from reality, like the more you break, um, you know, verisimilitude, then mm-hmm. like the more it harms your movie. Yeah, I got you. No, I totally understand what you're saying, dude. Yeah, we'll get into some of that, and like I am all for suspending like certain elements of disbelief like number one as long as like as long as they look cool like that it's something that is definitely the coolness factor i think will trump a lot of different things and also like i just don't want the situation to be like corny and stuff like that Mm -hmm. and it's one of those deals that like you just you know when you're watching it it's completely subjective and one thing that one thing might be corny as shit in the beginning but it might be awesome in the end like so uh, it's it's one of those deals that for me, like I just like I know it when I see it. 
Mm-hmm. Yep. This is this is this is exactly the um, this is one of those episodes I think we're going to be dealing with a lot of um, a lot of stuff that I'm, I'm sure we'll find the words to articulate what we mean. But there is going to be mm-hmm. a lot of kind of like you just you just look at it and you just know that something's off. Right. Ex- exactly, dude. For sure. So next question for you. What was the first action movie that you saw that made you fall in love with the genre? I, I actually have I have two here. Um, I'm going to cheat a little bit because they're these are like sort of the two that informed the things that I really love about action movies, like my two favorite types. Mm-hmm. Um, first one, Bloodsport. Uh, with, oh, yeah. With JCVD, baby. Jean-Claude Van Damme, Bolo yep. Young. Um, like I'm I am, as you well know, and probably people who do listen to this well know, I am huge into martial arts and fighting movies. And mm-hmm. this was this was like one of the original sort of like keystones in informing my love for martial arts movies. And not only that, like, this is also like, oh, I should check out some of these Asian martial arts movies um, because of, like, some of the characters that aren't like Bolo Young. Um, check out that realm of of, Asia, of martial arts movies. And, like, that opened up a whole new fucking doorway for me, too. So Bloodsport is right up there. And then it, my love for science fiction action movies was birthed because of Terminator 2. Um, love Terminator 1, but in terms of, like, an action movie... Terminator 2 is maybe one of maybe the most perfect science fiction action movie ever made. Um, it's it's the the action is perfect. It builds off the original in a way that's a, that's inventive but also keeps continuity. Um, mm-hmm. you get the you get practical effects, you get at that point in time cutting edge, you know, CGI and special effects that held up for a long time. I mean, they looked good for quite a long time. It's yeah. it's very much like in that regard a perfect movie. And then I'll give I also give um, James Cameron a lot of credit for um, for it, not just in this movie but also going back to Aliens the second Alien Aliens um, making making one of his um, action action heroes uh, women you know Ellen Ripley and then later we get um, we get Linda Hamilton um, Sarah Connor as like an early female action hero like he was way mm-hmm. out of the curve in that regard. Oh, he totally fucking was. And like a lot of the special effects that um, they use in Terminator 2, it's almost like these are things that um, it's like a, like the groundwork for special effects work in the future and everything, especially with like the T-1000, which was actually like an effect that was inspired by one of his own movies. It was the water tentacle yep. of the abyss and everything. And um, I I don't think I saw T2 in the theater. Like I, 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 part of me seems to place me in a movie theater, but I don't, like, I think it's just one of those memories that I like created, you know, but like, I remember seeing it on VHS. We had the VHS tape yeah. and stuff with Arnold on the motorcycle. And that is just such a goddamn landmark of a movie. And no matter what, like that is something that I like, I could watch at any point in time. I'm still going to love it. Like, you know, a lot of the lines and everything. Mm-hmm. And it's just like, it, it was, as a kid, that was just like the fucking movie. You know what I'm saying? Like for me, like they could have stopped right then and there. And I, I think I'd have been the, like, okay, probably, <laughs> probably should have. Uh, the, the third <laughs> one was, it was fine. And then they get real squirrely, real squirrely after that. Yes, they do, dude. And like, just the iconography of Arnold and everything, like the, it being the good Terminator and stuff, like just such a cool fucking twist to to, to the first one and everything. Like, mm-hmm. I, I love that. Bloodsport was actually going to be mine, but I realized that I saw another movie before I saw Bloodsport. And like, blood, dude, Bloodsport was fucking awesome. That's awesome, were a kid, dude. It was so goddamn great. Van Damme was like just so the fucking man and everything in that movie and stuff. And just in that time period in the 90s. 
90s. He was fucking great. And like I recently listened to a um, there's this podcast I've been listening to about screenwriting. It's called like it's 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 weird. Like the same guy hosts like two podcasts and one is like bulletproof screenwriting and the other one is called Inside the um, Screenwriter's Mind. Mm -hmm. And he was doing an interview with um, the writer of the of Bloodsport, this guy, Sheldon Leach, like L-E-T-T-I-C-H. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Real quickly, just, is is the podcast host, is that Jeff Goldsmith? It is not. It is, hold, it is, um, let me see here. It is, give me one second, Inside the Screeters, Brian Schmine, with Peter Dresberg and Jeff, oh, sorry, that was the the guests. Yeah, who the hell is this guy? I can't think of his name. That's fine, it just, that just sounds like, I used to listen to a podcast with Jeff Goldsmith, who was real, um, it, it not not necessarily about the mechanics of screenwriting, but like just of the um, I can't remember the name of the the podcast, but um, more of like the how did the script come to the changes in screen? You know, like like his thing was very focused on writers. Yes, yes. This guy's name is Alex Ferrari. Yes, and okay. I, I've I've heard I've heard the name Jeff Goldsmith before. And okay. this guy Alex Ferrari had the the writer Sheldon Lynch on the show, and like I wish I could remember the details of this, but like I guess. Bloodsport or something they were under the impression was uh, like a true story. It's it's based off the the supposed exploits of this guy Frank Dukes. Yes, that's right. And like I guess when it's the perspective that they were taking in the show is that the whole thing was like fake and stuff like that. So that's right. what they 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 were arguing those exploits and everything. Right. And like and like I remember just a lot of a lot of the the, the tournament the way it looked that that gritty kind of fucking Asian feel to it. I absolutely love Bloodsport, but mine is actually somebody that um, got compared to John Claude Van Damme a lot in the early 90s. Mine is Out for Justice, 1991, man. My dad, him and I watched this movie like one time, like late at night or whatever, and I loved this fucking movie. And like, I thought Seagal was the goddamn man. Like, I was actually Mm -hmm. on the Steven Seagal would beat up John Claude Claude Van Damme side of the coin in the 90s during that whole discussion and stuff and Out for Justice was just fucking great like the the one man kicking a bunch of ass and stuff like William Forsyth was great in the movie the all the crime and everything he even finds like this dog you know and befriends this dog and in the end they beat up the guy who threw the dog out of the car it's just such a fucking great movie <laughs> I is is this the one okay I yes I know I, I do know this one and I am I am on the I am of the belief that Prime Steven Seagal would have beat up a lot of these action heroes of the time. One oh, yeah. dude's massive. I mean, he's yeah. really really big. Two, he is one of the guys that is in fact like a trained martial artist. That mm-hmm. is that like could literally like kill people with his hands. Um, you know, he came into acting much much later. He was like in his mid thirties when he finally gets a crack in some of those early movies in like the late eighties. So like. You know, he had like the bona fides already before he became, you know, Steven Seagal. Um, yeah. So he was he was already a huge dickhead way before he was an actor. <laughs> right, right, of course. And like this movie was like this was like how I want to remember Seagal, not the guy who played the Beachland Ballroom a couple of years ago and stuff. Like this is <laughs> this is the Gaul, the Seagal that I want to remember and everything. And I'll actually I'll use this um, use this example to lead into the next question. It's like one of the things that I thought about action movies that I thought was was true when I was a kid was he is just such a fucking shit kicker. Okay, in this movie, and like there's even a scene. It's one of my favorite like beat up scenes ever. 
whatever, where he's in this bar and he wraps a pool cue and like a, uh, a cue ball inside of like a handkerchief and he's just beating people down with it and mm-hmm. stuff. And like now, not all of the shots on everybody are with the pool cue and he doesn't use the rolled up cue ball the entire movie. But like one of the things that I always thought was true was that dudes would go down with one punch and that <laughs> right. one and that one punch like would knock somebody on their ass and stuff like that. Now, keep in mind that like um, Seagal probably had the ability back then to put a lot of people on their ass with one punch, but in out for justice, he's going up against like bigger dudes and stuff. And the idea that like one big ass dude falls on a punch, that was just something that I thought was like, I just like, okay, this is how it happens. Like fights are you like, you get into the situation and somebody just throws one punch and that it's it. That's it. And then when I got into my first fight, I learned that that was not the case. <laughs> right. There's, there's a lot about fighting that like the movies really gloss over. Um, mm-hmm. And very few ever really capture like the real grittiness of it. But like right. the idea of like the one punch and guys go down I mean, it, it's possible. Like, if you hit someone the right way, it is entirely possible to put them out. Like, it, it does mm-hmm. happen. It's just you're very unlikely to, like, be able to land a perfect shot on someone to do that. I mean, it, you think about it. Like, boxers are trained to do that, and they have a hard time doing it. Yeah, yeah, I got you. Yeah, for sure. No, that is a really good fucking point, dude. Definitely. And, like, the idea that somebody could do it so consistently – that's like the thing that um, is is a hundred percent not true. You know, like even in a bar fight, like let's just say like there, a bar fight breaks out between you know like you and like there's a couple other dudes or whatever. Let's just say you're able to one punch Mickey one of these dudes. The the odds of you doing it again <laughs> are very very slim. You know what I'm saying? And like even if you did land like a really good punch on one guy, you might still have another guy coming at you, you know, or who knows, maybe the one punch you laid on the other dude, just, you know, he had a little bit of like an adrenaline shot and now he's coming back after you while you're fighting the other guy. So the movies really like, at least like back then and stuff were, you know, more like, like one punch Mickey's like, you know, one thing he's down, make the guy look badass and stuff. And then when Seagal's wailing on these dudes with a pool cue, like it's a whole other fucking, it's a whole other ball game. Now that I believe they'll go down to one. Oh, for sure. One of those. <laughs> at, at the very least, I'm not like coming back up to get hit again. I'm just kind of like, I'm like lying there like, all right, well, I'm, I'm done now. It's you're hitting me with an object. Um, yeah, I just and, got hit oh, with a cue ball. I'm not going anywhere. <laughs> right. Sort of, it's funny, because, like, sort of the exact opposite uh, The exact opposite end of that is we've a movie we've talked about before, and one of my favorite, it's an all-time fight scene, is the fight scene in They Live between Keith David and Rowdy Roddy Piper. Um, oh, yeah. Where they're just rolling around on the ground, slamming each other. It's really, it's not, it's not, like, flashy whatsoever. Um, it, it goes r- directly in contrast to what you would have seen in a lot of 80s movies with a fight. Like, no one's... It's not very... And it's athletic enough. I mean, you know, Piper was, a, at the at the time, a wrestler. I mean, still wrestler, really, up until he died. But um, it, but it, it's like a... It is a fight that two, like, big dudes would have in an alleyway. Picking each right. other up, throwing each other to the ground, wrestling around, hitting each other in the nuts. That's, like, what a real fight would look like. Yeah, exactly. And that is, like, one of the least poetic fights like ever and it works amazingly and stuff Mm -hmm. and like that they'd almost like you feel like what those dudes are going through and just when you think like the fight's going to get over somebody lands a gut punch Mm -hmm. and it just keeps on going and stuff it's like one of the greatest things about that fight is there is the realism behind it and stuff and like i could appreciate like a um 
I can appreciate the, the realness of it. And like, if it's done great, I can appreciate a perfectly crafted, like it's almost written by a great author approach to a fight, which we'll get oh, into yeah. some of the stuff as we, we watch, um, oh. watch that, get into the fight clips. And For stuff. sure. There's when we get into some of the later stuff here, there's stuff that is basically impossible, but who the fuck cares? It's fun as hell. Um, <laughs> right. Which, yeah. Who cares? It's fun as hell. Um, yeah. So like, that, that's a really good one. I, Chema, here's, here's something that like, <laughs> that like i'm sure you had this thought too the concept of a flesh wound was big in my mind yes that you could just mm-hmm. get shot as long as it wasn't like directly into your body and directly yeah. at an organ it was just a flesh wound you know mm-hmm. shot stabbed whatever it's just a flesh wound it's fine there is no such thing as a fucking flesh wound you get shot through your fucking bicep good luck using your arm at that point right. in time. like you won't be able to bend it upwards it, it's it's just like I, I like in like and I'm even thinking about like some of the um, some of the Rambo's the later Rambo movies when they got real bombastic and like Stallone would get shot or stabbed or burned or whatever and then just like rub black powder and set his flesh wound on fire to close it and it's just like well that's a bad idea by the way let's just, you, you're wounded and now you're gonna set yourself on fire terrible idea mm-hmm. um, but right. like you know there were just like. These things were just minor impediments to the to the hero, um, you know, completing his goal. And it's like, it, it's just so funny because like um, I, I'm gonna give I, I'm gonna do this a lot at least when I give some breakdowns and stuff. I'm gonna give the counterpoint to it because one of the best counterpoints of of someone getting shot um, is Hank in Breaking Bad when mm-hmm. Hank gets crippled, uh, you know, by his encounter with the Mexican assassins, the twins. Yeah. And he gets shot like what seven, eight, nine times, something like that. And mm-hmm. you know, inherently, if a human being gets shot that many times, they're probably not getting back up. But again, we're we're doing a we're, it's a TV show, and Hank's you know one of the one of the heroes of it. So we got to you know we got to like bend the rules a little bit for that. Um, but at least like he's not just like walking into the bullets and like nothing's wrong. Like he's crawling on the ground and can barely move, basically. Right. But towards the end of the encounter, but. Give Breaking Bad credit, it takes Hank an entire season, which is still sped up, you know, in terms of recovery, but it takes mm-hmm. him an entire season to get over the physical and mental scars of his shooting. Yeah. Which is what would oh, really yeah. happen if you took a, a fistful of bullets to the body. If you survived. Oh, my it. God. Yeah, no shit, dude. Like the the recovery period and like the the body trauma after the fucking after the uh, the, the wound and stuff like that. I mean, that's got to be like that just has to be like detrimental to a human oh, being. Absolutely, and stuff, you know. And like for you to have to come back out of that, like I mean, we know it's television, but if like there was somebody, if like that could take years, you know. I mean, it might be something that lasts somebody the rest of their life. The rest of their life. The stuff, of their life. You know? If you have that many bullets in you, it's the rest of your life. But they did a good. Again, it's a it's a like we said, it's a TV show. We're going to suspend that disbelief. But at least they could have did a good job of showing like the the kind of care that someone would need in the aftermath mm-hmm. of that. They did a good job of showing like Hank had to learn how to walk again. He had to learn right. how to do a bunch of things again, and he still had PTSD, like which they give you know a few flashes of when he does eventually get back into the field. Um, he has PTSD because guess what? When a bunch of dudes are trying to fucking kill you, that's traumatic. Right? Yeah, you bet, dude. And like that's one of the cool things about Breaking Bad that you know even though that that is definitely something that's like factually inaccurate, that the show gives a shit about it enough to like address that and to make it feel as realistic as possible. Because there's a lot, there's a lot of breaking bad that like, if you were to tell me that a chemistry teacher just started making meth, I would say there's gotta be one in every state, one in every Mm -hmm. county. Oh, for sure. You know, and, and they do such a great job of like, 
leaning into like the fact that like this could be going on next door, like your own chemistry teacher at high school could be doing this stuff and to couple it with this attention to detail. I think it's great. And it's also could be one of the things and that, that type of attention to detail could be one of the things that makes it one of the most heralded shows ever. I think so. I think so. <laughs> yeah, yeah, definitely dude. Like, yeah, I, I'm very happy that even though I wasn't watching it while I was, while it was on that I avoided as many spoilers as humanly possible and was able to enjoy the show, like right around mm-hmm. the time that it, that it wrapped up. I absolutely love it. Yep. So now that you're, now that you're grown up and you're a little bit more aware of the differences between real life and film, do you have a, a certain criteria for what makes a solid action movie? Um, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't call it like a different criteria. I just now, because of, you know, because of like how this sounds so fucking pompous, but like how much more film savvy I am than I was as as a kid, I need the filmmakers to deliver. I call it delivering on your promise. So if your promise to me is like a, a crime thriller action type movie, something like heat, Sicario, uh, collateral, one of those kind of movies, Mm-hmm. then those need to have real-world consequences and, more importantly for your action scenes, at least adherence to some real-world physics. Like, right. it, it, like you can't, like, you know, like, one of, the, one of the great shootout scenes of all time is in Heat. Like, this is, right. if you were, if, Chem, if you and I were directing an action movie and we wanted a scene like that, I would, that's like, day one I would sit down and, like, watch that and see all the little mm-hmm. things that Michael Mann does to to get the most drama and the most action out of that scene and you know it still plays you know obviously like they're the amount of bullets that fly in that fucking scene are ridiculous but it still is grounded in reality no one you know no one takes 20 bullets to the chest gets up right takes a you know takes a grenade runs through that like it, it's it still has real world consequences in real world physics so like if that's the promise then i need you to adhere to that promise but if you're if you're talking like uh, lately, for some reason, I've been into sort of like B action movies and B horror movies. Um, mm-hmm. So if if I'm getting some like gory action horror movie like Overlord or Army of the Dead more recently, like fine, break all the realism you want. You're talking about like fucking Nazi zombies and shit. Like I don't, I don't really care. Um, I don't really care how this works out because you're already telling me that like reality is broken from from the outset. So we don't need to have too many rules that set it in a real world. Mm-hmm. Right. Dude, you make a really good point about the promise and everything. Like that is like the perfect way to phrase it. And like that is one of the things that I feel that in the trailer or just in the general explanation of the movie that like you have to deliver on that in some way, shape or form. And like the delivery on it, like your successful delivery does free up some of the whole like yeah that really can't happen you know what i'm saying mm-hmm. like it's amazing how a great product will make you like kind of forgive some things that may drive you like insane in a movie that's not as as well done and everything mm-hmm. you know and like i think that that is vital to it and like all the stuff with like the zombie nazi zombies and everything like that like as long as you like you know as long as that's what you're promising and everything like it's totally fine, you know. It would make no sense whatsoever if you're watching a, uh, a like a one of these kind of like hurt locker, you know, takes place in the Middle East, like a desert warfare type movie, and then all of a sudden you have zombie Nazis show up. You know, it wouldn't make any sense right. unless it's like right. unless there's some sort of promise from that in the beginning and everything. So like that is a really really good um, that's a really really good like take on the subject and everything, and that that's something that I t- totally agree with, and like. 
I, I don't really have like a, I guess like I'm in the same thing as you. I don't really have like what I would call like a certain like criteria and stuff. There are certain things that I'm definitely over in when I, in terms of like an action mm-hmm. movie, like, like um, slow mo, a guy just like mowing down people with a gun, you know what I'm yeah. saying? While like taking all these shots and stuff like it, like that kind of stuff I'm over with. Like I'm even over with like, you know, to a certain degree, the, the big time charmer and stuff, you know, like the guy who just like bangs everybody and stuff. Like, I, I think that as far as like a character and everything, I think that audiences have matured a little bit from the, okay, like, yeah, I'm just the stud horse cop and I bang everybody and I do this and then mm-hmm. everything works out for me type situation. I'm just like totally over that. And one thing is, is that when you, when you make a, a point about like the physics and stuff and some of this, like the realism in that regard, like that's the kind of stuff that like, to me, like I definitely want you guys to stay into some sort of like some sort of spectrum of reality. I don't want things to be taken too extreme unless it's not like in the promise and all that stuff. So, um, I am definitely, uh, th- that's what I'm all for. Like just keeping everything in the promise and um, making sure that you d- deliver on the promise without some of these worn out like action tropes that mm-hmm. we've seen 20 years ago. Yeah, exactly. Um, so if those action tropes bother you, then I highly recommend you never watch a Scott Adkins movie. Um, okay. Scott Adkins is like, I- I'm very surprised he hasn't broken through beyond like the streamers, but like, he has like, there's like a, there's like a, not, it's not connected, but like, there's like mm-hmm. a Scott Atkins fucking action universe on all the streaming surfaces where like he is your more classic, like 80s, 90s style action mm-hmm. hero. And it's him and every possible action cliche you can think of in every one of these movies. Oh, that's interesting. Now, in some of these cliches, like, have you seen any of these movies? Um, I started watching one called, like, it's like called, like, The Accident Man or something. Okay. Is it, like, when they use some of these cliches, are they self-aware to where it's enjoyable, or is it just part of the movie? In this one, in, in, in The Accident, I think it's called The Accident Man. I'm going to double-check on that, but I'm pretty sure it's what it's called. Like, it's very clear they're self-aware. Like, it, it's, okay. it's a little bit, at least in this case, it's a little bit of a parody almost. We're like, yeah. he, you know, like we're Scott Atkins is like the smooth. Um, it's like he's leading a team and he's kind of like the smooth operating leader. And then like we yeah. got the wild card. We got the femme fatale. <laughs> we got the, you know, we have the, uh, the the big tech nerd and, you know, that kind of stuff. Like it, it feels like they're they're just like, you know what? Make these people as fucking bizarre as possible. We're gonna have fun with it. Okay. See, if it's self-aware, I'm kind of okay with it. But if I'm walking into something that's supposed to be serious and we're still plugging that action tropes from 20 years ago, that's a problem. Like, I feel that, like, the genre should evolve if you're going the serious route. But I will tell you, I love self-aware stuff. And you're right. It is called Accident Man. And, like, there is a total place in my heart for self-aware stuff. And if it is self-aware, it makes it even more enjoyable. It's almost like I want that kind of stuff in there because it just makes it more enjoyable. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. When done the right way, it can be really fun. Like it, it really yeah. can be. I'll, oh yeah. And I'll, I'll 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 say this real quickly too. We've already I've already mentioned verisimilitude and you know breaking reality and that kind of stuff. I think sometimes movies can break away from the from the promise and it works. Like mm-hmm. just real quickly, I was thinking about from dusk till dawn. Like if yeah. you didn't know what that movie was about, and all of a sudden the fucking ancient Mexican vampires show up, that's like a little like. 
that's very shocking that this that this um you know what seemed like a straightforward Quentin Tarantino esque crime well you know produced by Tarantino but um mm-hmm. crime movie turns into uh, turns into this fucking <laughs> horror turns into this like eighties it's really actually more like seventy style schlocky horror movie is like mm-hmm. jarring but you know like it it kind of works for it same with right. same with um not an action movie but in the same vein like. 10 Cloverfield Lane, if you again, if you're unaware of the connection like in the Cloververse, um, all of a sudden, like after this, you know, after this uh, pandemic movie or this plague movie and this kidnapping scenario, also there's aliens here. It, it's very like, oh, OK, like that's mm-hmm. that's something I wasn't expecting. So, right. It, it can work. Um, there's even a, there's even a movie that becomes it's a survival movie that becomes a horror movie. Very, have you seen Underwater? Oh God, no, I haven't. But I, I have heard of the movie. Okay, it's with Kristen Stewart and um, like Vincent Cassell, and yes, I think this movie. I, yeah, I know exactly what you mean. Yeah, I, I'm pretty sure this is the last movie released by Sony before they were acquired. Okay, um, which is kind of interesting. Uh, but it's mm-hmm. um, it's like the survival. You know, it's a survival horror movie. They are underwater, many many miles, um, in like a drilling platform, and then it's uh, and then I don't know. Do you want to be spoiled? Does everyone else out there want to be spoiled? Oh, go for it, dude! It's a, it's a backdoor Cthulhu movie. Really? They're drilling into fucking Cthulhu. No shit! That is a really interesting take. Yeah. Wow, I didn't, I did not know that. That's a really cool kind of twist in the subject there. That's really interesting. It's kind of you know what? Like it's it's one of those ones I know exactly why it kind of you probably didn't hear about it or see it. Um, totally understand. <laughs> but like I was at home <laughs> during the pandemic. It was free. Mm-hmm. Why not watch it? Yeah. I was like, you know what? This is this was not a bad way to spend two hours. I'm fine with this. Yeah, and dude, people give Kristen Stewart a bad rap, but like she's she good. Is turning out to be like a really legitimate actress. Yes. Like it just they all think Twilight. Everybody should the same thing. Pattinson, like maybe because he's a dude, like he gets, some sexism he gets to skate. there. He gets to skate. Yeah, and like she is like it's just still like people like either you really love her or like people hate her, you know? I I am I'm I'm very on board with um <clears throat> you know depending on how long Pattinson plays Batman I have a feeling not very long you know maybe another couple movies and that's it mm-hmm. right um maybe even like one more movie and that's it but I am 100% on board with the idea of bringing Kristen Stewart in as some some variety of villain uh too bad oh yeah that would be awesome if that happened i think that would be a great uh just a great little kind of you know thing to have them on stage on the screen again and stuff and in this type of setting Mm -hmm. 20 something years down the road dude Mm -hmm. definitely definitely and like you know you make a good point about the from dust till dawn and also cloverfield lane and like dust till dawn like i think over time like over over this 20 plus years maybe even close to 30 years now since it's been released yeah i think people have really like not necessarily forgiven that movie, but it's got a lot of like retroactive appreciation as like, because, you know, Tarantino just doesn't have such a vast catalog of movies that like his fans will like, will latch on to stuff that he's produced. And like, it almost becomes like a canon in like the Tarantino world or whatever that he has for himself. And um, so like, I think that that movie like was like a little misunderstood when it first came out. For sure. And, and now that people are like at least like aware of the vampire element, I think that it gets some a lot of retroactive love, which is great. Oh, for sure. And like Clo- and Cloverfield Lane, like I gotta tell you, man, like the alien twist in that was just so fucking perfect, and I thought it was done 
so right just coming up in the cornfield and just kind of seeing the ships and it just goes from there i i loved it and that that was one of those twists that i was like i i knew something's going on mm-hmm. but i i didn't know that it was going to be aliens so like that was just like the cool like appropriate kind of fit for for that movie yeah for sure for sure and can i give you this is this is always makes me laugh um from dusk till dawn is at least part of the kill bill universe uh, I think there is some connection there. I, it's I'm the same rem- sheriff played the by Michael sheriff. Parks. Okay, that's right. Gotcha. That's right. So the that's guy right. that finds the bride is also gets killed in um, killed in the uh, gas station. Okay, gotcha. Yeah, there's uh, there's some little there's these little things that sort of bind certain movies together, and I knew that there was a connection there. I didn't know which one. So yeah. Michael, yeah, Michael Parks is the fucking man too. Dude, so, so Michael Parks, and you know who else is in that scene? Who else? It's um, Academy Award winner um, uh, Hawks. Fucking TJ. No, what the hell is his name? John John Hawks. John Hawks. Academy Award winner John Hawks is also in that scene. Wow. Wow. Dude, that's awesome. Like, I that guy's a fucking man, too. Like, I love him. He He's from, great. He's great. goes from playing Kenny, uh, you Kenny, know, Powers Kenny, brother. Kenny Powers' brother to freaking Oscars and stuff. It's amazing. Yep. <laughs> that's so cool. All right, dude. So let's round out this section really quick. What are three of your favorite action movies? Okay. Um, as aforementioned, I've already talked about one of them, T2. Terminator 2 is, I think, maybe the most perfect uh, sci-fi action movie that's ever been made. So I won't get, I won't go too far, too much farther into that. Just to say that, like, if you, that's it's one of those ones that, like, if someone's never seen it before, I'm always shocked. I'm like, how yeah. how have you not seen this? Like, literal. Right. This is a movie that um, this is a movie that I would send to space for people mm-hmm. for other cultures to see in terms of like this is like one of our best action movies. You should watch this. Um, so T two, uh, more of more recent vintage Mad Max Fury Road. Um, just the the painstaking care that was put into all the little details of the movie itself, and then all the details that go into the action sequences that make mm-hmm. them all feel very dangerous um, because they are extremely dangerous because they're all very real. Um, you know, the, the, the way the stunts are coordinated, the way the everything is pulled off in that movie and in, in, in the action is fucking perfect. It is, mm-hmm. it is my favorite. And, and the fact that it's all being done during a chase or two chases, basically really heightens it for me. So Mad Max Fury Road. And then maybe my, one of my most favorite, um, you know, one of my most favorite early CGI fests and and the beginning of and the beginning of uh, this particular guy's career, but Independence Day, um, our our first taste of Roland Emmerich destroying the entire fucking planet, um, <laughs> as he as he really enjoys doing. Um, yep. But you know what the the effects again those effects really hold up. It's it's a lot of you know it's a lot of CGI, but like a lot of the actual explosions are some really elaborate miniature sets that they set on fire. Mm-hmm. So a nice combination of the CGI and uh, and practical, I guess not practical effects, but set effects in that case. Yeah, I love it. I love all three of those movies. I watched Mad Max Fury Road like within the last six months. Absolutely loved it. I want to see the black and white version. I just don't know yeah. where to, to get that. Yeah. Um, there's been like a couple of screenings for it out here, but this was all pre-pandemic and everything. Um, but like I, that's one thing I want to see. Oh, for sure. And like. Independence Day is just a fucking classic. Dude, awesome. I love that. I love that goddamn movie. I remember ordering the videotape from the Home Shopping Network, and it had a hologram cover that was uh, the White House. And when you moved it, it was the alien ship blowing up blowing the White up. House. Yep. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Love that movie. Three 
fucking great selections. I, I kept mine in the um in this in the sphere of my childhood and I went with uh Lethal Weapon Two. I fucking loved Lethal Weapon Two growing up. Like the addition of Joe Pesci to the cast and yep. stuff was was perfect. You know, it was just such the great comic relief that you need and this was Joe Pesci just being it just this is the height of his popularity and stuff like in the early nineties. Like I loved that addition to uh the cast and this is Mel Gibson. That that movie is where I learned the uh, and I still I still think about this diplomatic immunity and how yeah. that guy just tosses it out there but I'm like I don't think I don't think you guys really know what that means because you can't just come over here and murder people and leave but right. I love it I still love it it's still great Oh it's it's fucking awesome dude totally a classic um the next one is Demolition Man God, what nice. a fucking masterpiece. I saw this one in the theater. This is still one of my favorite movies. Just a great science fiction concept, executed perfectly. Easily my favorite Wesley Snipes role of all time. I mean, this is just so much, so much fucking good stuff going on in like less than two hours. It's easily one of my favorites. I'm, I'm then, surprised. Oh, go ahead. I'll, I'll follow okay. up there. Go ahead. The last one was that got the inspiration for the title of this episode. The last action hero is also just incredible. Like what a fucking, what a goddamn genius like movie and stuff. I mean, even the whole like idea of bridging the film world and the real world world together, but also all the dumb little things that they make fun of all the deconstructing the action movie. Perfect. Yeah. Oh my god! Even like the whole thing with the, the when they go to the video store and it's like Stallone is the Terminator, and then they're having the conversation about like, oh, I bet everybody has a five 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 number. Well, how, there's only this many possibilities. How do you explain that? And Arnold's just like area codes. Like it's just awesome. <laughs> it's so awesome. Easily, easily a top action movie of mine. That was another one. I think I saw that multiple. Like I saw that like when it came out, and then I saw it like in a dollar fifty theater later on. It's just a perfect movie. It's one of those movies that. I don't think it'll ever it'll ever gain like it'll ever gain like like massive appreciation the way like the way that like John Carpenter's movies like ten years after they were released like were oh by the way this is a masterpiece but that movie deserves much more credit for being a complete deconstruction of the action movies and like when you watch it now it's, when you watch it now especially I, I've seen it recently I want to say like two or three years ago I saw it um, like it, it's it's it is hysterical. Like when mm-hmm. you go through all these action tropes, like it is really, really hysterical. Oh, dude! Charles Dance is the villain and mm-hmm. the eye and everything. It's just, it's just so fucking I, perfect. It really is. I love how when they introduce Charles Dance, and who's the kid that play? Who's the kid? Okay, it's, it's this kid. He was in My Girl too. He had this like brief run of fame in the nineties. I'll look his name up okay, really does, quick. But um, but when the kid, but when the kid, they open the do like you know he sees the you know he's seen the house before. Obviously, I haven't seen the movie. Um, Mm -hmm. and then like, you you know, they pull up to his house and when like they, when Charles Dance opens the door and then like they're, they're, then they're, when their conversation's over and the kid's just like, this guy's clearly a villain. Like he looks like a villain. Are you not (laughs) getting this? It's like, yeah, it's like, yeah, like aren't, aren't the, you know, like when you really think about all these action movies, especially that those types of action movies from the eighties and nineties, when you think about those very particular types, could they, could they not make the villains look any less villainous? I mean, like they... 
they right. might as well just have a sign on their chest that says villain. Yeah, there is no ambiguity there whatsoever. Like that is totally uh, that is those people were so identifiable. And his his name was Austin O'Brien, Austin the, the kid who played yeah. played Danny. Yeah, and like he made fun of all these different kinds of things. Like isn't she just way too hot to be working at a video store? <laughs> all this other kind of stuff. It's a it's it's just it's amazing i i love it and like i this is a movie that i, I feel like i need to watch sometime here oh, for sure. um, s- soon that and demolition man i'll make jess uh, i'll subject that just to that uh, I, on my birthday for sure there you go <laughs> I, want, I wanted to double, just double back real quick you take wesley snipes over, uh demolition man over wesley snipes blade because i almost put blade on here okay because like I will tell you, it has been so long since I've seen Blade, and even when I did see it, it was just one of these party nights where we're all loaded. Mm. That's a movie I got to rewatch before it's I can give awesome. you an honest opinion about it. It's awesome. Um, like, hey, one of one of our first uh, one of our first Marvel movies, um, Blade. Um, it's it's awesome, and it's also a reminder that Wesley Snipes of the late '80s and into the '90s was really we talk about this we've talked about this multiple times and we'll probably talk about more here he is one of those one of the few guys who could single-handedly carry an action movie like he is Mm -hmm. so good as the action the singular action star by himself he can just do it all Oh God, he's, he's amazing, man. And like, I, I can't remember if I told you, but like, I, I went to a red carpet event when I was writing for Nerdbot, and like, I met him and stuff like just like a quick, like, Oh, Hey, handshake thing. That guy, what a fucking charmer. So much oh, yeah. fucking personality from oh, him. Yeah. He just such a fucking eloquent goddamn charmer, man. Like this is a guy that I could have, if they would have let me, I would have followed him into the, to the theater and sat with him and stuff and just mm-hmm. let him talk my ear off all night long. Char- super charismatic, <laughs> Um, he just has he has that it thing that you always mm-hmm. want Hollywood stars to have, and he's you're right he's very charming. That's almost how he got out of paying taxes for all those years. <laughs> almost, 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 but not quite. Not quite. They they caught up to him, and he definitely had to serve some time there. But you know whatever. Yeah, he did his time. It's all good. It's all good. <laughs> All right, man. Fantastic. Well, that wraps up the opening discussion. So now we are going to move into the stunt person spotlight. And no joke, man, when I was putting the outline together, I was just trying to think of something cool and different. So I was like, all right, let's focus on a stunt person, you know, because there are people out there that think that like, yes, it is so-and-so grabbing onto the plane or yes, it is so-and-so doing that. And that is not a fact. Like there are people that, and a lot of work that go into a lot of these action and a lot of these stunts and a lot of these setups. So I was thinking like the best way to do this is we could just kind of each highlight our individual and stuff. We can, you know, make some comments about them like afterwards and stuff. But, you know, um, I just like, I threw in some questions there to kind of get everything going. Like, where's the person from any foreshadowing from their early life that maybe like, Hey, like this person like was just destined to be a stunt person. Like also talking about um, like maybe how they got their start, if there's any cool factoids. And then also we're going to go over like the signature stunt and any of the efforts that went into the signature stunt. And then I got a, just a fun little kind of like, you know, thought exercise question to round out the section. So if you want to take it away, dude, let's start off with your guy. All right. My guy is not a guy um, actually. And this is in part um, when I was, when I was putting this together earlier in the week, I was, I was thinking about, you know, we already mentioned how James Cameron was, pretty far ahead of the curve in championing, uh, championing um, female action heroes. So mm-hmm. I was like, you know what? Let's stick with that. Let's go down the same vein. And yeah. probably people who are not familiar 
with this particular actress probably don't think of her necessarily as being an action actress but like that is her that is 100% her background um probably most people think of her uh more recent stuff as like crazy rich Asians and I'm talking Mm -hmm. about Michelle Yeoh um Malaysian actress who cut her bones in Hong Kong in the action films of the 1980s and a lot of people do not know this about her um you know, she's not just like the matronly grandmother figure in in Asian in Asian films. Like she was for a long, long time um, the equivalent of like Linda Hamilton, but in mm-hmm. Hong Kong. Um, so she gets her start. Um, she actually so she's from Malaysia, but she gets her start doing uh, modeling stuff. She was actually Miss Malaysia in 1983. Um, uh-huh. Won a bunch of beauty pageants in Australia. Her family moves to the UK when she's like 20 years old. Um, 21 years old, she wins beauty pageants in the UK. She was actually in Miss World, like in 1984, I think. Um, that's that's you know that's where she sort of gets she catches the attention of people who are you know casting agents and stuff like that. That's who she catches the attention of you know through through that realm. And more importantly, she gets cast in a commercial with none other than Jackie Chan. Um, this is in 1984, mm-hmm. late 84, I believe, and. It's very like apparent to Jackie Chan, and I forgot the name of his like production company in Hong Kong at that point. But it's apparent to her that like that Michelle Yeoh has she's another one of those people that just has it. There's just something about her that sort of jumps off film. So they're like, so in addition to this commercial, they were like, okay, so we got to see like what she can do in these movies. And it's really interesting because you know she's not um, her background was like in ballet, like she was a ballet student for a long time. Um, which yeah. is obviously like, you know, it's an athletic pursuit, especially when you're studying, like she almost, she was like in college for ballet um, before like she, she injured her back or something. So <clears throat> there's an athletic background there, but nothing that would suggest that there's nothing that would suggest that like, she is like a budding action star, but when you're going to work with Jackie Chan, that's, you know, you're going to be, especially that era of Jackie Chan, you're going to be in some, uh, some really intense action movies. And this is, uh, you know what, I, I won't spoil this factoid. I was going to get to it, but this is, I'll get to the factoid later here. But, so she doesn't get her start in Hollywood. She gets her start in these 1980s movies. And here's a list of people that she works with um, in uh, in Hong Kong. So Jackie Chan, first and foremost, she's in like four different movies with Jackie Chan. Uh, Yun Wing Po, uh, Yun Ping uh, mm-hmm. of The Matrix and Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. Um, okay. She works with young Sam, uh, she works with, not young, I guess at this point, but Prior to coming to the United States, she works with Sam Hung, who you might know him from the show Martial Law that was on CBS for a while. Okay. Um, she works with <clears throat> she works with uh, this is an important one. I'll get back to. She works with Cynthia Rothrock. Um, she's an American who was in a ton of 1980s and 90s Hong Kong martial arts movies, and we'll get back to her because she's very important. Um, she is also in two different movies with Donnie Yen. She's in two different movies with Jet Li. She's in two different movies with Chow Yun Fat. Um, this is all in the course of about like six years in Hong Kong from like 1985 through 1991. So she gets, she is getting like sort of a, like a baptism by fire with some of the, with, uh, you know, in terms of Jackie Chan, you know, maybe the, you know, Hong Kong's like ultimate, uh, martial arts star. Um, Yun Wu Po, Yun, oh, God damn it, I always do it. Yun Wu Ping, um, you know, the, the premier fight choreographer possibly in the entire world. Um, and then a bunch of other other people who like st- have studied martial arts their entire lives before bringing it to bringing it to screens, and she gets to work with all these people. 
And so that's when we get to, then that's when she breaks into Hollywood. Obviously, this is where a lot of people our age know her from, from Tomorrow Never Dies with Pierce Brosnan, opposite, mm-hmm. opposite Pierce Brosnan in uh, that, that Bond movie from, was it 97, I think. And she actually had to be talked off of doing her own stunts by the director, Roger Spottiswood. Because um, <laughs> she, like, her early films, like, in Hong Kong, there weren't that many stunt people to go around. So, like, she did them all. She, in one of the movies that she did with Jackie Chan, I want to say it's, I want to say it's Police Story 3. Um, she, like, jumps a motorcycle from one moving car onto another one. And, like, in all of the fights in in all those 80s movies, she is the, there is no stuntman. She is the person fighting all these people. Um, so, flash forward to 1997, she actually does all of her own fighting in, um, in Tomorrow Never Dies. And it was, like, so much so that, like, Pierce Brosnan was just, like, fucking blown away. That, like, this, you know, I mean, she's, like, a little woman. She's, like, maybe 5'3", 100 pounds or so. And he's just, like, he's blown away that this, like, little woman who's, like, a mo- who was a professional model for a long time, essentially, is out here keeping pace with all of these stuntmen that he's working with. It's pretty intense. <laughs> That's awesome. So, just to, real quickly, I want to circle back to, um, back to Cynthia Roth- Rothrock, why this is really important. Um, so, Cynthia Rothrock, it's, you, you probably, if you... I've see, actually seen several of these movies that Cynthia Rothrock's been in, which is kind of like, I just didn't realize at the time that it was who this person was. And actually, I saw one that I'm going to talk about a little bit that actually had Michelle Yeoh in it. I didn't realize who that was at the time. Um, but so she's in, she's in, the equivalent of these movies would be, these things would be like direct-to-video streamer type movies now. And they were yeah. just, they were low budget even, even in Hong Kong. Like they were real, kind of like mass produced. They could be made real quickly. The storyline's all the same. No big deal. Um but, like, this was really, like, again, this was, like, really putting um, Michelle Yeoh was ahead of the curve here. Because in a lot of these movies, um, like, thinking about, like, in particular, this movie called Yes, Madam, um, that she that she did with Cynthia Rothrock, they are the two leads. Like, the men aren't the leads in the movie. And, in fact, like, mm-hmm. Cynthia Rothrock and Michelle Yeoh, for the most part in their movies, are the leads. And this is, again, like, 20, 30 years before, like, Marvel was breaking ground with female superheroes. There were female leads in Hong Kong movies in the 1980s. Jesus fucking Christ, that's awesome, dude. Like, they really, like, taking the, uh, you know, putting women in the foreground that early and stuff is fucking awesome. Way to go for them. Very awesome, very awesome. So, here's, like, what really, like, this is what really, this is, like, a little factoid kind of deal. And what really kind of blows me away of this, with this, is that Michelle Yeoh is not a trained martial artist at all. She doesn't have really? like a belt or a rank, or maybe she does at this point in time. But when she got started, she's not a trained martial artist. She had to learn how to do all this on set and during like the stunt work and the fight choreography. Like she had to stand there and like go toe to toe with Jackie Chan, go toe to toe with Jet Li, with Chow Yun Fat, with Samuel Young. She got directed getting directed by Wu Ping, and it's like she had to do all of this just like basically with with no martial arts background. And basically the equivalent is like, imagine like you have a concert at Carnegie Hall and mm-hmm. you're, you're playing the piano and you have to do it all by ear. Like that's what she was doing every <laughs> single day that she showed up on set. Sorry about that. It had some technical, technical difficulties. Chamo, you want to continue your thought there? Oh, I was just saying like, that is just a commitment to learning your fucking craft right there to like be able to like train with those people in between sets and stuff. And for somebody to pick up on that, that's just like a drive and dedication that like, I wish I had because like that's just so fucking cool and stuff to be able to like learn from those people, like, you know, hands on, like to be with them and stuff. I mean, she's got to have some really awesome stories. Like there's got to oh, be sure. some really cool stories that she could tell, oh, you know, for sure. 
the just real quickly the action sequence that I'm going to talk about too. Um, like it, again, knowing this that like that you know we had one in this. It's uh it's from it's from the movie Yes, Madam. I'll spoil it just a little bit. So you have one woman, Cynthia Rothrock, who is a trained martial artist. And you have one mm-hmm. woman, Michelle Yeoh, who is not, who's, in, you know, a, really basically at this point, like a first-time actress. There is there is no difference between their movement and moves uh, in this action sequence. None. Like I, can't, like, I can't pick it out. So, like, I'm just going to, like, say that there, that, like, you know, not, it's not a knock on Cynthia Rothrock. It's a fucking big ups to Michelle Yeoh for keeping pace mm-hmm. with someone who's professionally trained. <laughs> right, of course. Yeah, that is fucking awesome, dude. Like, it just like for me, martial arts. Like, I, as a kid, like I was sort of it, but I could just never do it. I was heavy and stuff, and I look just ridiculous doing it. But it's been something that I've just been so interested in because it is a. It, people don't under understand exactly like how much of an art there is to martial arts. Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. Um, I mean, you like just to take to take one of Michelle Yeoh's movies. Go watch Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. That is art. Like it's it's a capital A art movie. Mm-hmm. Right. Oh God, yeah. Those fight sequences and that. I remember when that came out. Like everybody was just like this was just like a darling movie because these fight scenes were so amazing. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's unbelievable. Oh hell yeah, dude. What the, so the movie's called? Yes, ma'am. Yes, madam is the one in particular. It might it might have a different title too. Like it might be called like Police Assassins or something. But like uh, generally, <laughs> there's a lot of these Asian movies get have like different titles. Um, yeah. with, for English speaking audiences, but I think generally speaking, you can find it as yes, madam. Actually, I'll, I'll link you to this particular scene that I'm talking about, uh, you know, later, but, um, it's, it, it's, yeah, it's fucking intense. And actually, yeah, well, I'll, I won't get too far into it. Cause I want to hear about, you know, any questions you have obviously, and then where you're going with this. Okay. So like, number one, I think that is a really, really great selection. And like to pick somebody that, you know, that I'd never heard of to give me like a little bit of an education about her life. I, I think it's amazing. And like what I say, like I've seen tomorrow never dies. It's, it's been a while, but um, to get this kind of history lesson, I think is fucking awesome. And for, for just like, I don't want to like make it sound like so sexist here, but it's just like for a, a woman in the, in the eighties to like do this kind of stuff is amazing. Like you just, this was something that wasn't like a, a popular thing to do. You know, the eighties was still like, you know, guys and testosterone and, you know, mm-hmm. dicks and everything like that. And, for for someone like for such a surprising character to come out of nowhere and to have this resume and to be able to meet the people that she's met, I, I think it's awesome. Like there's, there's really like just no other word to put it. It's a really fucking awesome achievement. Yeah, for sure, for sure. She's so she's what she's probably got to be like fifty nine, sixty now, and she still does the bulk of she's in she's in a lot of things still, but um, she's like in Star Trek Discovery. She still mm-hmm. does the bulk of her own stunts on that show too. <laughs> That's that's amazing, man. Like that, that really fucking is. And like, if you love it, and if you're staying safe, continue to do it. Why the hell not, right? Mm-hmm. For sure. <laughs> fucking amazing. That's a really great selection. And I'm going to take my my stunt man. It's a guy. It's a guy named Lauren Bumps Willard. And um, <clears throat> I chose this guy because he was the very very first person to do a particular kind of stunt which we will get into here in a little bit and that stunt was also one of the very very first stunts to be planned in a certain sort of way which I will get into as we uh, continue on with this segment so Lauren Bumps Willard this was a dude he was born September 12th 1935 and when in doing my research I found two different 
potential cities where this guy could have been from. They both have the same name. It's Toronto, and it's Toronto, Iowa, or Toronto, South Dakota. So I found two potential. There wasn't a lot of information on this dude, so this was like a, a lot of research went into this, and I want to be as specific as possible. So I found two birth locations for this guy. One using like an ancestry type site, and another one was. Um, I found an obituary of him uh, that I was able to read for free because I apparently have to pay to read obituaries from the past, which is something that I will keep in mind for when I start my career as a private investigator. So, okay, <laughs> this guy, um, he was born in Toronto, Iowa, South Dakota, and he passed away in 2016 in Daytona Beach, Florida. And um, he had a pretty normal life as mm -hmm. a young guy. And then um, in 1953, he graduated high school and he joined like this would be the equivalent of um, almost like a monster truck rally, but in the 50s. And it was like these thrill shows where they would have cars and all these different stunt people and like whatever kind of motorized thing doing really cool stunts, they would have it here. And like this guy started off as just a mechanic and then almost in like no time, he kind of worked his way up to being a performer. And he got his like start by doing one of these stunts where, um, they would drop a guy into a moving car and then the guy would sit in the moving car and then jump it through a ring of fire. So that's kind of how um, he at least got his like first taste into stunt work, which would then, you know, kind of pan out into what I'm going to talk about in a few minutes. So in terms of this guy getting into Hollywood, the only thing that I was able to find was he was on a stunt team, this guy, Jay Milligan, who was a um, like a stunt coordinator type guy. This guy, Milligan, also put on a show in Houston where they first did the what they it was called like the astro spiral jump and what this was was a car going 360 degrees in the air and then landing perfectly so this guy milligan was the um was kind of like the pioneer of this particular stunt and this particular stunt got the ears of a guy named guy hamilton who was set to direct the man with the golden gun the 1974 roger moore james bond movie and in the course of production in this movie, which took place in Thailand, they decided to incorporate this 360-degree car-like um, stunt into the movie. And so I'll tell you, like, one quick factoid, just kind of like a fun factoid, is um, this guy, uh, Willard, was a founding member of something called the Hell Drivers. And Hell Drivers were, like, another one of these stunt teams. And um, one of the guys on the Hell Drivers eventually ended up getting contracted to do stunt work in Diamonds Are Forever. So that's um, just another, like, little cool factoid here. But let's get back to the actual stunt. And the actual stunt is this 360-degree car flip that took place over the Mekong River in Thailand. And this took place on June 1st, 1974, on the 35th day of production of The Man with the Golden Gun. And what makes this particular stunt so interesting is not only is the first car flip of its time, but it was also the first stunt, or one of the first stunts, to be calculated using a computer. And technology at this time was was 
growing, even for the 60s. And they were able to use computers to make these mathematical calculations to help plan out this particular stunt. And the, um, give me one quick second here. The um, mathematical calculations on the computer, they were provided by a company called the CalSpan Corporation in New York. And they found out that the car had to be perfectly balanced, so the driver and steering wheel had to be in the middle. And they also had to have a curve ramp that um, was hit at exactly 48 miles an hour, and they would do the flip onto the other side, and they designed ramps to do so. So what's interesting is that the ramp that they designed was eventually patented by a guy named Raymond R. McHenry. And Raymond R. McHenry was actually the dude in Houston that was driving the car through um, its first, like, you know, 360 degree turn when they did this in Houston. So he went to the, um, went to the patent office and he filed a patent for this ramp to be used in not only large scale productions, but he also filed the patent so it could be used in miniature productions, meaning toys. So toys were blowing up all over this time and like Matchbox car tracks and everything. So the ramp that they ended up using in The Man with the Golden Gun was also the same design that they would make Matchbox car car flip tracks out of and stuff, which um, which I thought was actually pretty cool. And like the website that I went to, bestrides.com, provided this really cool kind of drawing and little early spec drawing of what the, the ramp looked like and everything. So what they did was they had this ramp and they um, made it and constructed it to look like a bridge that had been broken down over the river. So 007 is in the car and he is driving an AMC Hornet hatchback and um, when he's in the car, they're going to use the car to jump this particular um, this particular river. So what they do is they have um, Willard sitting in the center of the car with the steering wheel in the center of the car. And he's dressed all in black, so the camera can't pick him up. And then they have two dummies, one that looks like Roger Moore and another one that looks like a sheriff that James Bond is like trying to save in this scene. And... In no joke, one take, they do it. And they had to make some modifications to the car to get the car to go to 48 miles an hour as quickly as it did. Like they didn't have a lot of track room. So that was really the only modifications that they made to the car. But they, they managed to land this stunt on one take. And they're just like, yeah, we don't need to do it anymore. And they had a backup car and they you know, made it so that they needed to do it in other takes. They could have, but they did everything in one take. And this um, is still in the Guinness Book of World Records as the world's first like on film 360 car flip landing. And it was pioneered by this guy, Lauren Bumps Willard in 1974. And since then, it's become like a pretty, not like the most popular thing, but this is something that you still see every now oh, and yeah. then. Mm -hmm. And the, the fact that they did it uh, practically and stuff, I, like, you know, just, just, hey, dude, drive up this ramp, I thought was actually pretty awesome. And um, the guy, Willard, um, didn't do really much of anything after this. This was his big claim to fame um he passed away like i said in 2016 he made like a one or two appearances in like stunt specific documentaries and everything but this is what he went down in history for and if you're gonna go out on top in the stunt community you might as well get yourself a guinness record uh to go with it 
For sure. One take, that's all you need though, right? I mean, if, if yeah. all the math works out and you're you're doing everything the way it's supposed to go, it should work. Yeah, and like what's when I was watching this footage, like it just makes it look so effortless. You know, like it's this whole thing, like no joke, it runs very smoothly and the car doesn't really sustain a lot of damages on the other side. And this is all of, you know, maybe like three seconds of footage in the, in the film total. But it's it's like a really cool thing to watch. And like I I was very impressed with like, you know, this whole process and even using the computer to, to kind of do the calculations and everything. Like, I mean, that is a standard procedure now. But in like 1974, I, I don't know. I didn't think that they would go to computers for that kind of stuff. I would just thought they would have hired and brought in the physicists and everything. But um, the fact that computers were involved and this was, you know, kind of like an early um an early introduction of computers into the stunt world. I thought this was a cool little anecdote for sure. It is cool, but the physicists would have nothing to do with this unless they needed atom split. Um, Oh yeah. However, um, however, like computers, yes. You know what they, you know what they mean by computer? Oh, like basically like a glorified calculator. calculator. (laughs) That's what they mean. I mean, we got to the moon on calculators. Um, Yeah, that's true. But um, no, no, it's, and like you brought it up, you're like, well, it looks so smooth. Yeah, the stunts look smooth when they go well. When they don't, they, they do not look smooth at all. Um, mm-hmm. But it is interesting. I, I, I do wonder, um, <clears throat> I do wonder, um, like, what would have happened had they, like, had they dumped, like, it's one of those things, like, what would have happened had that, had that stunt failed? Like, would right. they, have, you know, like, and, and someone got, had someone gotten hurt, would they have attempted it again? Would they have rewritten it? Um, you know what I mean? Like there's a lot of stuff that like sort of like comes into play there, especially with the movie. Um, but like, because they landed it and they got it done on one, on one try, it's like, Hey, we're done with this. Let's not try this again. Um, (laughs) we got it. It's perfectly good. And yeah, like that's, um, especially for like, it really takes until we get to like the, um, the late seventies and eighties before the bond movies become real more, become a lot more bombastic. So this is probably one of the first real big stunts in any Bond movie. Oh, without a doubt, dude. Like even the prior Bonds, like, you know, they're like odd job getting electrocuted was like a big, like kind of scene and stuff. So, you know, I, I can't remember when um, there's a boat chase, like an early boat chase sequence, but I even think that that might be later. That's than, in the eighties. Um, I know which one you're talking about. That's that, that comes in the eighties. Okay. So like, yeah, this, um, then this definitely could easily have been like one of the grandest bond stunts that had ever been done in terms of driving for the, for the time and everything. And now mm. it's like, if you don't get a car flip in the first like 10 minutes of a <laughs> right. bond movie, why, why are you even in the theater, bro? You know? Right. Right. And the Pierce Brosnan ones, my God, they're like laser satellites and mm. like all kinds of shit. <laughs> like, oh, and yeah. you go back to 1974, like we're going to flip a car. Right. That's right. Yeah. I remember like one of the last Pierce Brosnan ones I saw was like, um, it was a die another day and they had this Icarus project that mm-hmm. was like shooting lasers down to the earth that they got from space and everything. And like, I was just like, wow, I remember when like, you know, Robin Ford Knox was, was like a really big deal in the bond. Right. <laughs> I still remember that, that particular movie has Toby Stevens playing an Asian man who had like, you know, physical reconstructive surgery. Oh, no shit. It's a weird... He was like a Chinese general or something, and he disguises himself as a white British guy. It's a fucking bizarre movie. That one really sucked. It's one with Halle Berry <laughs> yeah. and the Invisible Car. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah, Jesus. Yeah, there's... Like, I, I gotta say, like, I'm really happy that um, they got what they got out of Daniel Craig and everything, because there... It's just... 
maybe it's just like that 90s to early 2000s cinema and stuff. And it's not like I hated the Pierce Brosnan ones, but they just, I don't think that they've aged well. No. And um, these Daniel Craig ones, I think are going to age well for sure. It's oh, just a yeah. really, really cool kind of different take on the character and stuff. And I like, I've seen like out of, I think I've seen three of the, the Daniel Craig was in the theater and they've, they've been a pretty fun ride each and every time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There, there's a, a, an element of realism that was totally lost. Like Goldeneye is kind of a, the, the only one of the Pierce Brosnan ones that still wants to play mm-hmm. with some, some element of realism. Yeah. Yeah. And like, you got to think like a lot of that movie the fandom is perpetuated by the game and stuff like that too. You know, so it's almost like the movie and the game run hand in hand. There's probably a lot of people out there who've never even like, God, this is named after a movie. (laughs) Like what's really, (laughs) yeah, dude, but that, that's awesome. Really great selection from you. I'm very happy that, um, that this section was a success. Like I, the whole, ever since I've seen death proof and for some reason, death proof has been the Tarantino movie that I've been going back to lately. I have just had this like kind of infatuation with the whole like the, the stuntman thing. Like it's a, a side of Hollywood that it gets its acknowledgments every now and then. You know, you might see like a photo of somebody in their stunt double, like you know that maybe gets a, that makes its way around the internet every now and then. But I think in general, it's like it's one of these elements of the of the production community that's like a little underappreciated, and it does suck because a lot of these people are doing you know shit that could put themselves into some really compromising positions. It it should be it should be um, an Academy Award nominated category. Oh, like, without a doubt, one hundred percent should be. Yeah, I I think that that is a they should do something like that. And believe me, the way that the Academy Awards are going, they're going to need to add new categories to shift yep. stuff up. So we might end up seeing that in the future. Hey, why not? I mean, it's basically an excuse to get like an action sequence into into the fucking into the into the awards night. So why not? Oh yeah, exactly. Give the people some like you know some explosions and entertainment to watch for like 30, 30 seconds of, at a pop while they're doing the nominees. Why the hell not? Mm-hmm. Okay, so just one quick question before we dive into the last section here, and that is like, if you were a Hollywood stunt person, which type of stunt would you want to? Okay. Hold on, I oh, never got to my stunt. Oh, sorry, my bad, my bad, my bad. So the whole section here in it. Um, so I'm I'm sticking with Michelle Yeoh, um, and I'm actually I'm going to specifically dive into the um, into the scene from Yes, Madam, that I'm. I'm going to call it the crazy 88 fight because you will not be able to, after I show you this, you'll not be able to convince me that Quentin Tarantino has not seen this movie. Um, So we have an extended team up scene with Michelle Yeoh and Cynthia Rothrock and another actor. um, It depends on, again, it's one of those things um, depends on where in the world you are. It's either John Sham or John Shum, um, depending on whether or not you're in Asia or America, but um, for argument's sake, we'll call him John Shum. Um, and it's about six minutes long. Takes place in this uh, villain's lair's tea house, which um, again, it's the crazy eighty-eight fight. It's one part of the reason I'm calling it that. Um, so Rothrock and Yo are the centerpiece of this particular fight, um, and I think again, this is very interesting because um, John Shum is there for comedic effect. Um, he's, I mean, you know, he's like totally competent. But, like, for the mm-hmm. most part, he runs around with a, a couple of swords, basically just defending himself and, like, yeah. screaming and just kind of falling over stuff and just generally being very much of, um, you know, at that point in time, like, the big thing in um, in these Hong Kong martial arts movies was to have, like, a bit of comedy in the in the action sequences. And that's a big part thanks to Jackie Chan. Like, Jackie Chan, yeah. um, obviously, we've seen plenty of his movies. That's sort of Jackie Chan's style of martial arts. It's funny. Like, it's, it's mm-hmm. body. It's physical comedy, basically. 
Um, So John Shum is basically there for that. He's there for the physical comedy, while the two women are like the centerpieces. We have hand-to-hand combat. There is literal acrobatics and gymnastics. Um, The stuntmen that are facing Yo and Rothrock are getting their fucking asses handed to them. They are getting thrown (laughs) off of... And we've talked about this before, how in Asia they have... In a lot of places in Asia, they have slightly lower safety thresholds for their stunt stunt performers. These dudes are getting thrown through glass and off of buildings and stuff. Like, it's... And it's very obvious that, like, this is... Like, safety was kind of... It's it's a little farther down the list than it probably (laughs) should be. Um, Both women get to use some objects as weapons, which is fun. Like, in particular, Cynthia Rothrock uses, like, this big... um, This kind of, like, decorative umbrella as as an object Mm -hmm. to fight people with. Um, so the, the whole scene's in Chinese, but you, you can even tell that they get some zippy one-liners. Like after they knock someone out or something, Michelle Yeoh will kind of pose and say something. Um, Cynthia Rothrock will pose and say something. It's very like Arnold Schwarzenegger-esque. That like, you know, he knocks someone out and like, you know, you know, like the, just to use like the horrible, um, the horrible Batman movies and like he gets in a, you know, he gets to free someone and say, chill out. It's like, right. very obviously it's those kind of one-liners they're delivering. And this is something that, like, two, well, two, two final things here, and this is, like, the most important thing, is that, like, it doesn't look like they, they do a lot of this with Hollywood movies now. And all martial arts movies, but especially Hollywood movies, they, they'll speed up the film to cover up any of the athletic deficiencies that the actor, you know, as long as it's not a stunt person, you know, if it's the actor in a scene, a lot of times they'll speed up the film to make them look faster. This mm-hmm. is not sped up. Michelle Yeoh and Cynthia Rothrock are really moving that fast. And it's really, really impressive how how athletic, how frenetic but still um frenetic but still in control they look when they're when they're doing everything. And mm-hmm. it's really not that this is important, but I do think this is with I do think that this is sort of like a um I just didn't say it's not that it's important. This isn't the most important things, but I do think that this is something that really stands out. That these women are fucking intense. They're kicking shit and they they're you know they're like the appropriate amount of violent it's it's unlike the crazy 88 fight it's not bloody or anything no one gets like fucking ripped apart um you know they're like the appropriate amount of violent for like a pg-13 style hong kong movie and like dude i'm telling you they still look fucking great the entire time and while that's not like well it's not like a sex sells kind of thing look great they really look the part of like heroic women like the entire time and I think that's something that's pretty important and something they, they I don't know who directs this movie, does a really good job of making sure that, like, they still look great while they do this. Dude, okay, I was, I had this on in the background and stuff like that, just kind of keeping my eye on some of the things you were talking about. And, like, yeah, Tarantino totally saw this. Okay, like, mm-hmm. this, it, the site, the fight scene doesn't like it's not like one of those things where it's like oh my god it like where you're playing the dark side of the moon with the wizard of oz like it doesn't line up like that but if we're talking the um okay so the guy character the comic relief character he's Mm -hmm. carrying the swords around and everything there's a part where he gets pinned down on the ground and everybody's coming at him with the swords that he's deflecting that's right out of right out of that kill bill crazy 88 scene Mm -hmm. um even the um somebody takes a slash at michelle yo and she bends backwards like it's almost like the limbo thing Mm -hmm. and uh, that's also from in kill bill too and like what's crazy is like she comes up from this and i think it's either she grabs this dude by the throat and like chucks him and stuff. Yeah. Like 
the, the fight work in this is, is like badass and like the, the um jumping up and down from the center onto the the upper ledge and stuff also a, a kill bill type thing and there's this cool part where she breaks through the glass grabs these dudes by the legs and like trips awesome. them and then they break the glass too then they fall backwards into some chandeliers like just really really great and the the speed on this is incredible too like there's a couple of slow motion things that um that i saw but like it was pretty much just to emphasize like this awesome jump that she does where she mm-hmm. goes from like almost in a squat position to a flip while this guy comes at her and she jumps over him and stuff like that but what a fucking fight scene and, like you're right about the whole like the sex like they're definitely very attractive women beating up these two dudes and they get like you know what i didn't have the volume up but you get like what appears to be one-liners in there but everything fits you know like it really fucking fits all i mean the whole thing where she's grabs a, this umbrella out of the crowd and like mm-hmm. is using it as this weapon and then it becomes like a pole vault type thing that she uses to get up to another floor and the dude falls down and smashes his head on the table on the way down awesome fight scene it's a great fight scene it, it really is like it, like it's I don't know like I, I I just I always think about that the scene in um, Endgame where we have like all the women finally team up and I just like mm-hmm. I'm like okay good for you but like I roll like it's so fucking it's just like so fucking cheesy you know what I mean like it's it's too it's too on it's too on point it's too cheesy and then we yeah. have this scene from you know 34 years earlier where the women just show up beat the fuck out of everyone look great doing it and no one's like trying to draw attention to it. Yeah, I know, right? Like, they really do, like, look fucking badass with these fights and stuff. I mean, the moves and everything are amazing. And the, the way that they the way that they block and, like, maybe turn a block into somewhat of a return strike, it, it's fucking great. Like, this is a really awesome fight. Mm-hmm. It's, it's excellent. Really, really excellent. There's, there's a lot of um, – there was an article that I found um, that had, like – had, like, Michelle Yeoh's, like, top ten uh, fights from, like, her, you know, from, from her Hong Kong days. And, man, she, I mean, she holds her own in every scene with, like I said, she holds her own in scenes with Jackie Chan, with Donnie Yen. Like, she is mm-hmm. there with them looking just as competent, just as fast, just as impressive as they do. Yeah, there was no, um, there was no, like, hesitation in her moves whatsoever. Like, everything looked really fast and really fucking smooth and just really really like artistic to a certain degree with the way that she would land punches or deflect somebody and stuff. Like, mm. Really fucking awesome, dude. Really great stuff. Good stuff. Good stuff. Like that scene a lot. Uh, this is, and I've, I know I've seen this movie before. Um, I was, I was, I was one of those, I was one of those fucking weirdos who just like, um, for like a long stretch during like my twenties, I was just like, Oh, there's a, there's an old Jackie Chan movie. I'll watch it. There's an old, um, there's an old Hong Kong movie from late seventies. I'll watch it. Like I used, I, mm-hmm. like I know I've seen this movie before. Now I have to fucking watch it again. Yeah, dude, I would definitely watch this movie. Really fucking cool stuff. Like, and this is just for the eighties and everything. It's even like more impressive to me that they were doing this, like this kind of work in the eighties. Like you, this would be something, a fight that would, you know, modernize the cameras and this fight interjected into today's world and that's the highlight of the movie dude i'm like i'm telling you the western western entertainment is always several years behind what they're doing in the east be it you know like we had all the the horror movies in the early 2000s that were already horror movies in japan and korea um right all the fight stuff that's you know really it's the martial arts fighting stuff that we're always way far behind on that's why Mm -hmm. That's partially that's part of the reason why Donnie Yen like really never hit it big in the United States because like we were decades behind what he was already doing. Right, of course. Yeah, it's like this seems to be uh 
something that's you know when in terms of martial arts like we just don't i don't know like we don't, if, we're, if we're not learning it we're not shooting it this isn't something that american audiences are interested in or maybe it takes that groundbreaking movie to come in and then everybody in america gets interested almost like the way crouching tiger was kill bill mm-hmm. that little like kind of kung fu assance that we had there in the early 2000s yeah for sure nice dude i fucking love it i i love it really great job on this section dude knocking it out of the fucking park that was awesome for sure i loved it cool cool all right so before we get into the next section let's uh just a really quick question around this out and this if you were a hollywood stunt person like what kind of stunts would you want to specialize in okay so the obvious answer here is fighting like i i would Hmm. doesn't it could be martial arts or otherwise just i i think it would be fun to like to be in the room be there with the fight choreographers as we like block out you know, whether it's some like spectacular martial arts fight or like, I, I think what's even more interesting is some of the like closed quarters, like a barroom brawl type fight, mm-hmm. yeah. um, you know, how oh, they yeah. block that out to make sure everything happens without like too many people being in, you know, being in, in camera with that, with, with certain stuff going on in the background, how, th- how that all works. I think that'd be great. But also Chumma, just one time I want someone to throw me off of like a platform into <laughs> a bunch of cardboard boxes. Yep. Oh, just yeah, one time in my life. <laughs> hell yeah well when jess and i make it big out here i will do anything possible to make that dream come true for you bro just just <laughs> like write I a promise. part just write a part in your movie where someone falls off of not a super high building you know just like a second story window into a dumpster yeah. and then that'll be me just falling into the cardboard boxes i will make it happen for you man i Perfect. promise like that that is just a fucking life goal right there i've always wanted to do something like that too and like even to be the dude who's like hooked up to all the crazy cables that gets a solid kick from like captain america and you have to shoot him back like 80 yards i would love to be oh, that guy for sure i i always like i always thought like if i was ever you know if i was ever a writer or director i would ha- Every movie, especially if there was, especially if it was an action movie, but any movie where someone in like a non-important character dies, I want it to be me dying, like falling off a building, getting shot and, you know, like getting kicked down a stairwell. Like, I want that to be me. Oh, hell yeah, man. That would be awesome. Is there any writers or directors that does that? Does that? Like, like um, the death for themselves? And then it seems like something that should be or would exist somewhere. I, I know Tarantino has been killed in some of his own movies that, he, that, he's, that he's directed. Um, I, I'm pretty sure he's killed in, he's one of the crazy 88 in Kill Bill that gets killed. Okay. Um, and I feel like... Django too. He was a guy in Django yes, towards the way yes. end. Yeah. Um, and then there's, gosh, I know there's someone else that, I don't know if they die a lot, but I know there's, I know there's another director. Oh, well, actually someone that we talked, that's going to be talking about here later. Peter Berg's like in fucking everything he does. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, but like, I don't know necessarily if he's like, you know what I mean? I don't know if he necessarily kills yeah. himself in his own movies and stuff. Yeah. He's trying to, um, you know, cling on to that acting glory that he had in the great white hype, which is like one that's, of my favorite that's right. boxing movies of all time. Takes part of it's supposed to take place in Cleveland too, which is that's right. Better. Yeah. <laughs> Irish Terry all the way. Yeah. So for me, like um, I probably could only get work as like Stephen Merchant or Paul Bettany stunt double. But um, if I did have the opportunity <laughs> to get, a, to get, yeah. Oh yeah. To get, um, to get this job, I would want to do the car stuff. Like the, Every, mm-hmm. this whole death proof thing i would drive around the death proof car i wouldn't kidnap or kill anybody and stuff but like that's the that would be the stun life that i would want to live would just be doing something crazy with cars and because like for starters i don't really know all that much about cars and i'm not really much of like a car guy you know i didn't have any car magazines in high school i, I didn't know what a spoiler was until i was like in my 20s and everything so like um 
the opportunity for me to like have this experience with cars, I think that's where, where I would, that's where my interest would peak would be the stunt stuff. That would be, I'm telling you that, that car stuff would be a lot of fun too. Like it just, it just has to be fun for those guys. Like it's, um, yeah. depending on, you know, depending on the scene and stuff and depending on what it is, like just thinking about like the, the drivers that they got for, um, what's the, the Hemsworth movie with where he's oh. Nicky Lauda. Oh my God. I know what you mean. I can't think of the title of it. This movie came and went. Yeah. But it must've been fucking fun as hell for the stunt drivers to like, Hey, you're going to be driving a Ferrari today. Um, at full throttle. Would you be interested in that? Like, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. It's called a rush. That's rush. That's right. That's right. Um, yeah, but like, good news for you, Chema. You could be the stunt doubles for either Gwendolyn Christie or Elizabeth Debicki. Yeah, that's true too. Oh, you bet, man. Oh my God. Like to be Gwendolyn Christie stunt double, that would be, a, that would be a dream come true of mine for sure. Yeah. I think, yeah, we're about the same height. We are. They're, so, they're, they're, they're just a little bit shorter than you, both of them. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Oh my God. That would be, I'd put on the armor and everything if they were still doing Game of Thrones. Like I, I would be all about that. I, you, you've seen Tenet, right? Oh yes. Yes, I have. I, I, I am imagining how hard it must've been able to film Elizabeth Debicki in any frame with John David Washington. Oh, I know. Because he's like 5'9 oh. or 5'10. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, like, she towers over him. Towers over him. That's right. Like, I need to lose about 30 more pounds to get to that to get to get that level. But her and I have the height and the arm length to pull it off. That's, that's right. for sure. I always, I just, I always think about that because it's, I remember, um, I remember on, like, remember that VH1 show, Best Week Ever? Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. I just remember, like there, there's a there's a picture of it was when Angelina Jolie was doing the um, Tomb Raider movies, and mm-hmm. she like there's a picture of her with her stunt double. It's this guy, um, I don't remember his name, but like it like I mean he's her same build. He's obviously wearing a wig, and then he just has like these massive fake breasts, um, <laughs> you know, like as part of his costume. And I, I forgot who I want to say it was Pat Oswald was like was talking about it in this clip, and he's just like, and there's Angelina Jolie's stunt double. Her hot, hot male stunt double. It's just like, I'm like, yeah. I mean, I, I guess if, I guess if like you're good enough to to fool cameras, you look like uh, you look like Angelina Jolie. You must be a pretty hot, dude. Yeah, that's true. Like, I'm surprised Brad Pitt didn't want to make off with that guy. Might have might have saved him some trouble in the long run. <laughs> maybe, <laughs> maybe. I love that they included the fake boobs on that. Like, that just makes, that just makes me so happy. <laughs> like, they paid attention to that detail for sure. Right. <laughs> 